Hey, brother. If you have your Bible, turn with me to Matthew chapter 6. If you don't have a Bible, you're welcome to use the black Bibles in the pew in front of you. And you're also welcome to take that Bible home with you so that you can have God's Word for yourself. The North African theologian and pastor, Augustine, had a uniquely powerful way of understanding sin and righteousness, good and evil, vice and virtue. He thought that if we dug down deep enough and really got at the heart of what most of our idolatry is, we would find nothing there but disordered loves. We are brave, says Augustine, not because we hate our own bodies and because we hate safety, but rather because we love other people more than ourselves, more than our own bodies, more than our own safety. Our cowardice, then, isn't a lack of virtue per se, but rather a disordered love. It's us loving ourselves, loving our safety, loving our bodies more than we love our neighbors. Honesty, says Augustine, is ultimately about loving your neighbor's interests more than your own. We lie because we love ourselves and our own interests and our own priorities more than we love our neighbors, and so we deceive. Now, Augustine builds this theology of disordered love from Scripture, from texts like the very text that we're going to be studying this morning. <clears throat> Excuse me. Last week, we began what we have called the Lord's School of Prayer. The Lord's School of Prayer. Jesus is teaching us not only that we must pray, but he's also teaching us how we must pray. Jesus, the expert teacher, begins his uh, school of prayer by doing what a lot of great teachers do. He exposes the students to a problem that they may not even realize that they have. And then he gives them a solution. And that's what we're going to see in our text this morning. Uh, the text for this morning is just Matthew 6, 5, and 6, but we'll read verses 5 through 15, all of this teaching on the Lord's Prayer for context. So join me in listening as I read those verses. Matthew 6, verses 5 through 15. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, Go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who is in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows that He knows what you need before you ask Him. Well, pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, 
neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. This is God's holy, inerrant, infallible, and inspired word. Amen? Amen. Father, would you please speak to us, your people, through your word this morning. Would you give us greater understanding, and would you allow that understanding to change us from the inside out? Would you equip us this morning for the work that you've called us to as your laborers in the field? We pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Will isn't here this morning, so I'm drinking out of a purple cup. Let's all remember how much we appreciate Will for putting that little white cup of water right here on the podium. Okay. I've got four points for you this morning. The problem, the risk, the solution, and the reward. The problem, the risk, the solution, and the reward. Point number one. After reading verses five and six of today's text, you may be tempted to think that Jesus has something against our posture when we pray. Right? I mean, it says here that don't pray like the hypocrites because they pray standing, as they're standing in the synagogues, as they're standing on the street corners. Or, as you read this morning's text, you may be tempted to think that Jesus doesn't want us to pray publicly. He identifies public prayer with the prayer of the hypocrite. The hypocrite loves to stand on the street corner. He loves to stand in the synagogue. He loves to pray in public. The truth of the matter is that Jesus doesn't really care about either of these things. Jesus is not overly concerned with whether you stand or sit or kneel or lie face down on your belly when you pray. Mark 11.25 shows us that Jesus assumes that the regular posture of His disciples will be that they stand when they pray. Listen to what He says. And when you stand praying, then He goes on to teach them about prayer. There are numerous other examples of people praying prayer standing up throughout the rest of the Bible, including Jesus Himself. Moreover, public prayer in and of itself doesn't seem to be a problem for Jesus. To just kind of quickly nip that in the bud, we see that Jesus prays publicly, and just to give one example, in front of the tomb of Lazarus in John 11. Jesus didn't care about praying in a synagogue. He wasn't opposed to that street corner or to a synagogue. He actually calls the synagogue a house of prayer. That's actually where the Jews were intended to pray. Well, if that wasn't the problem, then what was the problem? Well, the problem was... The problem that Jesus saw in the prayer of the hypocrites was their disordered love. Augustine was right when he saw disordered loves at the root of the problem of hypocrisy. You see that in the second sentence of verse 5. Go and look there. It says, for these hypocrites, they love to stand and pray in the synagogues. They love to stand at the street corners and to be seen by others. This is what they love. This is what their heart yearns for. They want to, they need to be seen by others while they pray. Jesus' presentation on prayer here in Matthew is part of a larger teaching on righteousness from the Sermon on the Mount in verses 1-18 through of chapter 6. Jesus teaches us about a whole bunch of different things. Three things in particular. Uh, fasting, praying and giving. And in each one of these, Jesus says, hey, don't fast like that, fast like this. Don't pray like that, pray like this. Don't give like that, give like this. 
And the verse that ties each of these themes together is the very first verse of chapter 6. Look there, chapter 6, verse 1. It says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. Right? The problem with the hypocrite is that they practice their righteousness before men so that men will look at them. Well, why does the hypocrite want to be seen by man as they practice these pious things? Well, if you keep reading, I think verse 2 tells us. It says, Thus when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. You see, it's not just that the hypocrite wants to be seen. The reason why he wants to be seen is because he assumes that as people are looking at him, they will be praising him. They'll be adoring him. They'll be admiring him. And that is the heart of the issue. The hypocrite stands in the synagogue or in the marketplace or on the street corner and his head is bowed very low. His eyes are closed. His hands are lifted high. He's in a posture of submission and he prays. And all the while, he is rejoicing in his prayers. But he's not rejoicing in the fact that he has the privilege to commune with God. He's not rejoicing in the fact that he is able to communicate with his maker. He's not rejoicing in the fact that God loves him and cares for him and, and, and wants to answer his prayers and meet his needs. No, the hypocrite is rejoicing in the idea that someone, somewhere, anyone out there may be looking at him and going, that's a righteous guy. It's what he lives for. The word hypocrite comes from the Greek word hypocrite. This was the ancient Greek word for actor, right? If you would have seen an actor on stage in ancient Greece, you wouldn't have called them an actor. You would have called them a hypocrite, a hypocrite. That's where that comes from. The hypocrite's on stage wearing a mask, right? Obviously pretending to be someone that he's not. And that's what we think of when we think of a hypocrite. So kids, Jesus talks a lot about how bad it is to be a hypocrite. And Maddox, if you ever have trouble remembering what a hypocrite is, just remember it's somebody who walks around with a mask on, pretending to be someone they're not. Except for rather than having a physical mask, their mask is their piety, their righteous deeds. Now Jesus takes this image and he applies it to the person who seeks human worship. He says that this kind of person, this hypocrite, He's an actor, and he views the entire world as his stage. And he is the star of the show. So when the hypocrite prays, he's not practicing righteousness. He's not praising God. He's performing for his audience, whoever they may be. The hypocrite loves himself more than he loves God. And so he seeks praise for himself rather than giving praise to God. Now the problem isn't praying in public. We've said that. It's, it's that the hypocrite loves to pray in public. The problem isn't physical posture, standing, sitting, sitting crisscross applesauce in a circle. The problem is the heart. The hypocrite loves the idea that Miss Johnson might see him out praying in public and go home and tell her husband, Mr. Johnson, I saw that man out there praying again on the street corner. He's so holy. He's so godly. He's so amazing. 
To the hypocrite, prayer is a performance, not a worship experience. Hypocrisy, according to Jesus, uses piety for publicity. And that is the exact opposite of what prayer is meant meant to be. Which leads us to point two, the risk. Jesus teaches us that there is an inherent risk to being a hypocrite. Whether you're giving or praying or fasting, there is a risk. And the risk is this. If you do these things for the praise of man, you may actually get what you want. At the end of verse 5, Jesus says, Truly I tell you, they have received their reward. How terrible is it when God allows us, wicked sinners that we are, to get what we really want? How many times has your wicked heart desired something that you thought you had to have, that you wanted, that you needed more than anything else in the world, and then when you got it, you realized just how foolish that desire really was? Our twisted hearts desire the praise of man, and God may just let us have it. And then when we do, when we get it, when we receive it, we find out, maybe not now, but eventually we find out, just along with every other idolater in the world, that it doesn't satisfy. I mean, how many times have you heard of celebrities or artists, you know, of any kind, sports people, I think they're called athletes, making it to the top of their profession, making it to the very apex of their field. The eyes of the world are all on them. They are being praised by anyone and everyone who knows their name. And then when they get there, the thing that they've been chasing after, they find out that there's really nothing there at all. So they resort to drugs and alcohol and men and women and a sinful lifestyle to try to fill the gap that they thought that they would find when they got to the top. The problem with the hypocrite is that he is training himself to appreciate lesser desires. He wants the praise of man rather than the acceptance of God. He's choosing the hamburger patty over the perfectly cooked filet mignon. He's choosing the can of tuna in oil rather than fine beluga caviar. He's developed a taste for something that isn't really worth anything at all. Isn't that just like us? We would rather have pornography than intimacy. We want to go to church online rather than doing the great but dirty work of doing life together in the flesh. We love shallow sentiment more than profound truth. We love quick thrills rather than enduring joy. We love the approval of man rather than the acceptance of God. And one of God's great kindnesses to us is that he actually lets us get some of that. You see, God allows us to taste enough of the world to see just how worthless it truly is. You know, the best artists, they understand how true this is. You know, young, hungry artists 
they live from one project to the next, you know, and they, they hope that the next one and the next one is going to bring the fulfillment that they finally desire. Maybe somebody's going to finally look at them and see them and appreciate them for who they, are, who they truly are and praise them for their talent. For their talent. And then, you know, as their career progresses, they may actually find success. One project comes out, received well. Another project comes out, great. And they live from one project to the next. But any artist will tell you that right after that project drops, whatever it may be, a painting, an album, it's really not that rewarding. It's really not as fulfilling as they thought it would be. The, the success, the acclaim, the adoration that they receive in that moment, it, it doesn't really, the hit of dopamine doesn't last. Even when you make it to the top, even when everyone loves you, that hit of dopamine doesn't last. And so artists have to learn to chase a, a greater reward, something more profound. They can't live for the praise of their fans. They have to learn to create for the joy of art, for art's sake. In the same way, a pastor who lives to hear someone tell him, hey, great job on Sunday school this morning. Hey, awesome job on Wednesday night. Hey, brother, that was a fantastic sermon. It's a pastor who's never going to be satisfied in his ministry. A pastor that preaches, waiting for someone to come up and tell him afterwards, great sermon, is a pastor who's preaching to the wrong audience. Preaching to man rather than to God. And the worst thing that can happen to a pastor is for him to receive that unadulterated praise on a consistent basis. Because he may actually start to believe in himself. And his mission is, he may actually believe that his mission is to preach to people rather than to preach to God. He may come to see his congregation as the primary audience rather than God. When you think about a, a hypocrite's prayer, you should think about it less in terms of an act of worship and more in terms of bribery. Because that's really what it is. The hypocrite wants something. He wants to be praised. And so he, he performs for you. He, he gives you his performance. And in return you give him your praise. And he may not even know it. He just, he hopes that you're giving him his praise. The hypocrite may succeed in buying the praise of man with his performances, but he should know that he will never be able to buy the acceptance of God. The praise from man, says Jesus, is the only thing he'll ever get. So not only is it tragic for the hypocrite to find out that He's already received his reward, but when he stands before the judgment seat of God and he sees, sees God in the fullness of his glory, he'll realize that the reward that he received in his lifetime wasn't even a good one. When the hypocrite practices his righteousness in this way, he will never hear the words, the only words that ever really matter at all. Well done, my good and faithful servant. This leads us to point number three the solution. So Jesus knows that we, as His children, even after the Spirit has come and made our hearts new, we are inclined to try and pervert piety for the sake of praise. Pervert piety for the sake of praise. The heart of the Christian may be made new, certainly, but we still inhabit this body of death. And it is constantly trying to draw us back into this state of sinful self-worship. We're just so inclined to move in that direction. And so Jesus offers us a profound 
yet profoundly simple and practical solution to this tendency. Look at verse 6. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. You read this solution from Jesus. I mean, he talks about this this terrible, this hypocrite, this person who has, he's just an idol factor. He just loves all the wrong things. And you're like, okay, give me this great solution. And his great solution is go into a room and shut the door and then pray. Really? Is that, is that it, Jesus? The beauty of the solution lies in its simplicity. When you pray in private, there is zero inclination to grandstand. For who? There's no one there. When you go into a room and pray in private, there's no temptation to perform. Who are you going to perform for? There's nobody in there with you. When you're praying to God, you don't feel pressure to use these big theological terms and to say everything just so. Why? No, God doesn't care. It's just you and God alone together in a room. You're the only one who's present. Well, God is present as well. There is someone else alone with you as you engage in secret prayer. That's why Jesus says, pray to your Father who is in secret. When you go and you pray privately, you're not technically praying alone. You're praying with God as well. Your Father, the one who loves you, the one who saved you, the one who sent His Son to purchase you, He will be there to listen to you and to hear your prayers. No one else in the world may be there, but the only person in the world that matters will be there. There's no need to grandstand for God. You will not impress God with your prayer theatrics. There's no need to perform for God. You're not going to impress God with anything that you say or do in that prayer closet. God created the universe. By the power of His Word, He spoke and mountains rose up and valleys laid low and quasars scattered into the abyss of the universe. There's nothing that you can say or do in prayer that's going to impress God. So just don't even feel like you have to try to. This kind of praying kills the nerve that makes you want to Pray for publicity. If this is true, then when we pray in secret, we're free to bear our souls to God. Since we're not trying to perform for man, but rather worship God, we can say what we want to God without any sort of pretense. We can be completely and totally honest and transparent. We can cry out to God, and listen, guys, we can even cry as we do. When we pray to God in our prayer closet, we should feel zero pressure to be anyone or anything other than exactly who we are. We should feel totally and completely free. When we pray to God in the prayer closet, we should feel free to say things that maybe we feel like we can't say to other people. Things that maybe we should say to other people, but we just feel like we can't. You know, that sin that maybe you've been wrestling with that nobody knows about, that you're too ashamed to confess to your brother or sister in Christ? You can tell God about that in the prayer closet. That bitterness that you've been harboring that you can't seem to muster up the courage to go talk to your brother or sister about? You can talk to God about that. 
that doubt you've been experiencing in your walk with the Lord, you can be totally honest with God as you pray to Him in private about those things. When was the last time that you felt that kind of freedom? When you felt zero pressure to communicate with any sort of pretense? When was the last time you felt not even a shred of anxiety about saying or doing the wrong thing in your interaction with another human being? Where you were not in the least bit concerned with offending somebody with the way that you communicated? I know it's been a while for me. But that's what God offers us. He offers us this kind of freedom in prayer. You simply find a room, you go into it, you close the door behind you, and then you can stand, you can kneel, you can sit, you can lay down on your belly, you can lay down on your back, you can get in a handstand position. It doesn't matter. You can just pray. You can just talk to God. It's usually at this point when you start talking about this, you get the kind of, man, I'm just so busy, you know? I want to pray like this. I want to have, you know, 30 minutes a day with God. I'm just so busy. No, you're not. You're not. You're not too busy. I have a, a buddy of mine who's trying to get back on track with working out, you know, so we made this commitment, you know, every day I was going to give him a workout and he was going to do it and then write me back. And the other day, I, you know, I texted him, hey, how'd, how'd the workout go? And he said, uh, not good, I didn't do it, Right? And I said, well, what happened? He said, dude, I literally had no time. And I said, literally? And he said, literally. I said, I don't think you know what that word means. And so I asked him, hey, uh, how, how many episodes of Friends did you watch last night? Well, you get where this is going. You see, he did have time. He just didn't prioritize his time. He didn't, he didn't make a way. He didn't find a way to get out there into the garage and to get it done. Moms are like, but you don't understand I don't have a minute to myself. I can't even go to the bathroom without my two-year-old coming and kicking down the door like Arnold Schwarzenegger to talk to me about a juice box. Oh, I get it. I understand. And that is real life. And I sympathize with you. But, hey, eventually kids go to sleep. In theory, right? <laughs> we have to be willing you may, Sean, I don't have a closet. I don't have a space. Yes, you do. You just may not realize it. Philip Ryken, uh, in his teaching on the Lord's Prayer, he shares this great story. He says that there was a poor woman uh, from one of Scotland's great cities. And this is what she told him. The, the demands of my work and the incessant clamor of the city made it difficult for me to find a quiet place to meet with the Lord. But eventually, I found the perfect solution. I throw my apron over my head, and there is my prayer closet. She made a way. But she didn't just make a way to pray. She made a way to meet with God, to commune with her Father. It was a priority in her life, and so she found a way to do it. And when she did that, she was following in the footsteps of her master, Jesus. If you've read through the Gospels, maybe it didn't really click with you when you were reading just how much time, and you'll notice it now that I've said it if, as you read back through the Gospels, but just how, how much time Jesus spent just going to be alone so he could pray, right? <clears throat> Mark one thirty-five. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, 
Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. I want to publicly honor my wife who gets up way earlier than she has to so that she can do this very thing, so she can, she can go and be alone in a solitary place without me and my big dumb mouth and my kids and their hyperactivity, and she can just be alone with God and read the scriptures and pray. Would she rather be asleep? You better believe it. My wife is like half feline. But she makes a way. And I'm, I'm sure that that's true of many of us. In Matthew 4, 20, 14, 23, we see that Jesus kind of does the opposite as well. Not only does he get up early in the morning, but he also stays up late when everybody else is gone so that he can pray. It says this, After he had dismissed them, that is the disciples and the crowd, he went up on a mountainside, so not only did he dismiss them, but now he geographically separates himself. He went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. Later that night, he was alone. Right? So he stayed up into the night praying there alone. In Luke chapter 5, verse 16, we learn that this was a regular practice of Jesus. Luke tells us, but Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. This was just part of his normal spiritual discipline practice. In Luke 22, in the Garden of Gethsemane, right as Jesus is preparing to go to the cross, he knows that he has to pray. He knows that he has to commune with the Father in order to be strengthened for the suffering that awaits him, the task at hand, the mission that God has given him. And Jesus does something very much like the woman who threw her apron over the head. You know, he couldn't get and go be totally by himself. He didn't have a room to go into. Listen to what Luke says Jesus did in Luke 22. He withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down and prayed. I once I could throw a football over a mountain, but I don't think I can do that anymore. But I think I could throw a stone, what, 20, 30 yards maybe? You know? That's, that's enough to be alone. And that's what Jesus did. You know, you don't have to have a layer. You know what I mean when I say layer? Like, you don't have to have a closet with like crocheted scripture verses and uh, essential oil diffuser and candles and, you know, everything just right for you to go and be alone and pray with God. You can just see a group of people, chunk a rock and be like, all right, that's about far enough. I'm going to go pray. You can throw an apron over your head. You can wait till you're alone in the shower, mom, when you finally have like five minutes of peace and say, you know, I'm just going to spend five minutes praying. Or in bed before you go to bed at night and you just realize you're a little restless, not going to get right to sleep, and you're there alone. Your husband is asleep. He may be snoring. That may be a bit of a distraction, but either way, you know, you're alone. The kids aren't there. It's just you. You can pray right then in that moment to God. Point number four, the reward. Man, I've got some good news for you. You ready? If you really want to praise God, if you really want to commune with God your Father in prayer, God delights to give you that desire of your heart. He is ecstatic in giving you that desire. At the end of verse 6, Jesus tells us that when we pray like this, our Father in heaven will reward us. Look at the end of verse 6 again. It says, And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. 
Now, before we talk about what these rewards are, we should note that Jesus is not opposed to rewards. Sometimes I think that we think that he is. You tracking? We think that he thinks that rewards are bad and spiritual things. But that's not true at all. Jesus is a big fan of incentives, but just the right kind of incentives. So, um, Bella, we've been offering her ice cream at the end of the week if she doesn't go pee-pee in her pants while she's at school. Uh, I don't know if Jesus is a fan of that parenting system and us offering up those rewards, but I do know that Jesus is not opposed to reward-based spiritual motivation. Jesus tells his disciples that they should seek rewards in heaven because the treasure in heaven will never fade. In Hebrews, we read this, whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists, okay, got that, and that he rewards those who seek him. In Colossians and Ephesians, we're told to do good because in due time we'll be rewarded. In Revelation, we're told not to fear suffering or death because Jesus will soon be coming with a crown of life our great reward. God does want us to seek reward in our prayer life, but we just have to seek the right kind of rewards, the the heavenly reward, the the steak and caviar rewards, not the can of tuna and hamburger patty rewards. And if we begin to understand what kind of rewards we ought to seek, then the way that we seek them will also begin to change. One author says this, he says, we can pursue eternal rewards secretly or worldly rewards publicly, but we cannot pursue both simultaneously. We cannot pursue the praise of man and the acceptance of God at the same time. So, what exactly will our rewards be? What reward is it that here Jesus is offering us in a pure prayer life. Well, I think there are several. I'm just going to really hang out on one, but, you know, praying as a form of communion with God is in and of itself a reward, right? Uh, Answered prayer is a reward of a steadfast and holy prayer life, right? We get to see evidence of God's faithfulness to us, etc. But ultimately, the great gift of prayer, the great reward of a holy prayer life, is God himself. Author Terry Johnson says that God has promised us someone in our rewards, not something. He doesn't promise us streets paved with gold. He promises us his glory, which is more valuable than gold. In Psalm 90, 14, we learn that God is our greatest satisfaction as his children. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love. Satisfy that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. In God, we are supposed to find our deepest pleasure and our greatest joy. Psalm 16 says it like this, In your presence, Lord, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And isn't that what we do when we pray? Isn't that what Jesus is teaching? That we, we step into the presence of God? Well, what should you expect to find there? What should you be more hopeful of finding there than God himself? 
What should satisfy your soul more in that moment than the idea that the God of the universe, your Father in heaven, has met with you in that closet and He is communicating with you even as you praise and worship Him? What will you find in the prayer closet? You'll find God Himself. And that will be our great reward. So my question for us this morning is this. Do we desire God? Is that the reward that we want? Will he satisfy our souls if perhaps he's the only reward we ever receive? Do you want more of him? If you say yes to that, if you say yes, I do desire God, I do want him to be my greatest joy, he is my everything, well then, The next question is, will you seek Him? Will you seek Him in private prayer? Will you find a way? Will you make a way? Will you send the kids outside? Will you send your husband to the store? Will you shut off the computer? Will you turn off your smartphone? Will you find some way and go and meet with Him in prayer? Will you shut off the world and open up the portal to heaven in the prayer closet? Will you seek Him when you're busy? Will you seek Him when you're anxious? Will you seek Him when you don't feel Him, when you feel cold? Will you seek Him in your suffering, when you feel like there's just so much despair, I can't even begin to commune with God? Will you seek Him in your prosperity, when everything is going so well that you perhaps are tempted to forget that you need God? Will you seek Him always and in every circumstance? Uh, We've noted on several occasions that uh, our bank accounts tell us the truth about who we worship, right? Right? Do we worship God or money? Well, you just kind of look at your checkbook or whatever the modern internet equivalent of that is, and you'll quickly find out who you're really worshiping. Well, in the same way, friends, I think it's fair to say that our prayer closets tell us the truth about our love. Our prayer closet will tell us whether or not our love is disordered, whether we love ourselves or whether we love God. If the only time that we ever pray is in front of people, for the sake of being seen by people, is it fair of me to suggest that maybe there is something deeply wrong with our walk with the Lord? Is it judgmental of me to suggest that we may be the hypocrites that Jesus is preaching against in these verses? So let me be the first to confess. I am a hypocrite. I am. I don't pray like I should. I don't make the time. I'm supremely disqualified to preach this sermon. Will you join me in being honest? Will you join me in admitting that we we need to do better? Not just as individuals, but as a church. I know it's hard. I know it it, it hurts, it stings, it burns to confess our sins like this, to be honest, to be totally transparent. It's terrifying. But if you give in to that, 
you just let God do what he's trying to do to you this morning, even right now, as this word is being preached to you, just let him work in your hearts. You'll find that he's making you more holy. He's, he's refining you even now as he convicts you with his word. He's trying to change you and me and this church into a people of prayer. But the only way that we can get there is if we're honest and we admit that we need his great grace to help us. There's a reason why sanctification is described as fire. Because it burns. But it doesn't just burn for the sake of burning. It burns away the dross. It burns away the impurity. The first step to admitting that you have a problem, to overcoming your problem, is to admit it. So join me in admitting that we need to do better. But the thing is... We can move beyond conviction. We can move beyond transparency and honesty. In our modern culture, transparency is sort of extolled as this greatest and highest virtue, the virtue towards which all other virtues point, the virtue that we should strive most to attain. But the reality is is that we have to get beyond conviction. We have to move past transparency. Transparency isn't an end in in and of itself. Once we've been transparent, then we actually have to pursue change. God's grace doesn't merely give us the power to confess our sins. It gives us the power to turn away from our sins. It doesn't merely give us the power to stop stealing. It gives us the power to use our hands to do good so we can help others in need. It doesn't give us the power to stop cursing and using our mouths for foul purposes to tear down. The grace of God gives us the ability to use our speech to build up and to give grace and to season those who listen to us. Well, in the same way, once we've admitted that we need help with our prayer life, we shouldn't stop there. We should earnestly pursue and seek God together and privately. And one of the reasons why we've kind of switched up what we're doing on Wednesday nights is because I want us to practice this. I don't want us to just say, yeah, we suck at prayer, man. Uh, You know, hey, what are you going to do? God's grace, amen. No, we're going to try to do better than that. So we're taking half of our Wednesday night service and we're just, we're praying together. That's not the all, you know, the in the be all end all solution, but it's kind of what most of us need to do. We just need to take one step in the right direction of obedience and just kind of trust that the Lord will continue to empower us along the way. I love the I love the life of Peter. You know, he was a hypocrite. Jesus, I don't care, no matter what, I'm not gonna abandon you. Guys come, first one to take off, Peter, boom. You know, he's in the garden. Uh-huh. No, I don't know him. No. Hey, I, I said I don't know him. I don't know him. You know, I mean, the same boisterous guy who is yelling, I'll never leave you. I'll never abandon you. A complete hypocrite. But the Lord worked in him, empowered him, and gave him what he needed. He used by God powerfully, preaches the gospel in Acts chapter 2. Thousands of people get saved. And then almost immediately after that, at least as we kind of look back on the story, Peter's there eating with some Gentiles and some, some Jews come up and Peter stops eating with the Gentiles now. Now he's afraid of the Jews. And Paul finds out about this when he ends up in Galatia and he basically confronts Peter and says, Peter, you're being a hypocrite. And so Peter repents of that. And isn't that so much of what our, our life is like as Christians? Isn't that what our Christian walk is like? The Lord shows us an area of hypocrisy in our lives and we say, oh, Oh, how terrible. Yes, I repent of that. And then, you know, a year, a month, if 
Five years passes, and he shows us another way that we're hypocrites. And we don't just throw up our hands and say, oh, no, I guess I'm just a hypocrite. We go, thank you, God, for revealing this hypocrisy in my heart and in my life. And now help me to do better. We can go from being a people who never pray to being a people of prayer with God's help. And so I pray that this sermon will be the beginning of something new and better for your individual prayer life and for our prayer life together as a church. So let's practice what I've been preaching. Let's go to the Lord in prayer now. Father, we, we delight in your word. We know that it gives us life, that it sustains us, that it is completely and totally true and that it reveals so much about ourselves to us. And so we pray that you would help us to embrace what you have shown us this morning, to repent of sins that we need to repent of, and to be strengthened and encouraged for all that you would have us to do for the rest of the week. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.